what I mean to say is the first hole you remember digging out of those five you dug, was there already digging down there? Had Rossi dug down there already? Had Cram dug down there? <clears throat> yeah. So we can assume then that this was after Zick when you dug. Mm -hmm. After the time that Rossi knew what was going on. Yeah. How did you I would think that the Rossi had dug down there before before um uh, Rossi had dug down there before this time. For the purpose of tile? Yeah. You know, I don't know who, who came up with that idea that it was tile. Because I don't know if it came out in conversation or, or if it was because of my uncle asking what we were digging for down there. Do you think it's possible that the digging was simply to bury people? Yeah, I would think so. That's possible. But we never, although I had no. Why would I just let a plumber go down there too, though? And not telling him that, you know, I, he wanted to dig where the boozy fell was, and I wasn't afraid of him digging. Dig where the what was? The boozy fell that comes in from the front. Because I thought that there was something wrong. Why? I, I have never been able to figure out why the hell the goddamn ground holds so much water. You could dig a foot down. You could go down the crawl space and dig a foot down. And then. And so you dig the foot down, leave it standing two days, and that hole would be filled with water. Like a natural spring under there. Do you remember any other specifics from any other of those five that you dug? Picking them up, bringing them home, killing? I would say... I think that I recall that I recall something about uptown area around Montrose, Montrose and Clark, somewhere in there, picking up somebody. But I, I think he was 22 or 23 years old, but I don't know. I don't recall. How, was, how did you feel the next morning when you woke up and you found uh, Godson dead? What was your initial emotional response? Just to throw him down the cross space. Get rid of him. Did you question yourself as to why it was done? Nope. What about sick when you woke up? Oh, that was when, when Rossi was I, You know, it, with God sick, I felt a little upset about it because I even wanted to help with, with his mother. But I even volunteered to help. Do you ever remember feeling remorse for any of this? What was your most overwhelming feeling? Fear? Remorse, uh, you want to get rid of it and, and put it out of your mind, cover it up, 
But once you bury somebody, it was already gone. There was there was no feeling. Bob and Peg, for the most part, you know, even, even like today, I don't I don't believe I killed anybody. But yet I know I did. Or I took part in it. When you found the body the next morning, you know, did you ever think, well, geez, there's already three down there, or, or there's already seven down there? Did you ever you had a number? Have a count in your mind? No. <clears throat> when you were gonna go out drinking the night before, did you No, you wanna know something? I think in fact the one in fact the one time I dug down there, I uncovered a body while I was digging. What was your reaction when you did that? I mean, how did you feel? Frightened. Did right. you ever think when you were going out at night that possibly you'd end up with another body? Did you ever think about that? When you're going out, say like you'll leave the house and have a few drinks somewhere? Well, yeah, in, the, in, this, in this last year here, I kept telling myself that I got to keep myself busy, 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 so that I don't have time to go down by the park. Stay away from down there. Don't go down by the lake. Episode 6, Another Man's Treasure. We here at Defense Diaries are so excited about the reception our podcast is getting from you, the listeners, that it truly continues to motivate us to keep working so hard to produce these episodes. So please keep spreading the word. It really has a huge impact. Also, we have started a Patreon page, which will include exclusive content that will only be available to subscribing members. Our episodes will remain free for all to enjoy, but if you want to feed your ears with more Gacy clips, trailers for upcoming episodes, remastered episodes, behind-the-scenes mini-episodes, bloopers, which I'm not happy about, but Darren, my producer, insisted, so he's the boss, merch, and much more. So check out DefenseDiaries.com to become a member of the Defense Team. We left off on December 18th, 1978. The Chicago Police Department's failures are coming to light and are continuing to mount, as is the pressure on Gacy by the Desplaines Police Department. David Cram and Michael Rossi are being looked at hard by the detectives as it's becoming obvious that they are extremely close to Gacy, both personally and professionally. And Gacy, well, he's gotten so desperate to elicit information from the cops that are shadowing him that he has resorted to inviting them into his home to dine with him and enjoy cocktails. I mean, after all, he really is the host with the most. So while this is going on with the surveillance team, the detectives out in the field and the state's attorneys are getting increasingly nervous at every hour that slips away without Gacy being in custody. You see, eight days into this investigation, every member of the Desplaines police force is confident in one solitary concept. John Wayne Gacy is a killer. The only problem is that they can't prove it. And if they can't prove it, they can't arrest him. And if they can't arrest him, they simply don't have the resources to continue to tail him and investigate him indefinitely. So as I've said previously, they are getting panicked and desperate people sometimes do desperate things. Just exactly how far will they go to get their man is what we are about to get into 
over the next couple of episodes. When we last checked in with Gacy, he was inviting Schultz and Robinson into his home for a lovely dinner, and rest assured that they were trying to peek around Gacy's house as much as humanly possible, poking their heads in bedrooms, using the bathroom, checking out the kitchen, basically eyeballing everything they could, and you can also bet your ass that Gacy had not left any substantive evidence lying around in plain sight for them to see. At this point, Gacy was running out of ideas to get these cops out of his life. So the invite into the house was taking the relationship he had developed with the men on surveillance to the next level, all in the hopes that they in return would be reporting back to Wally Lang and Kozenzak, telling them what a normal and well-adjusted guy he is. However, it was a completely transparent ruse, as he was attempting to pull the wool over the eyes of the men that had zero say-so as to which direction the investigation was going to go. Again, desperate measures. Now, the following comes directly from Schultz's personal accounts of the daily surveillance, which we were able to get our hands on for the podcast, and which will be posted in our Patreon account for subscribed members to dive into. As you will see, they are very detailed and well-written, I might add. So after finishing their meal at about 8 o'clock p.m., the three amigos left Gacy's house and drove over to Rossi's. Casey was there for a bit and then had to conduct some actual business, so they swung by Sport Mart and then to Rayfield's house, who was another one of Gacy's business partners, where Gacy told the boys that he had to work on some payroll. Gacy was in there for about two hours, and Schultz and Robinson occupied themselves with a small handheld Mattel football game. It's safe to say that this little game occupied nearly every waking hour that they sat on Gacy when they weren't chasing him around the city. Gacy eventually came out of Rayfield's house and drove back home. This is about at 10.30 p.m. Once back at the house, Gacy invites them in again. They politely decline, as they were in the middle of a best of five on their football game. As an aside, please always have in your mind that when you think of Gacy's bungalow-styled home, that he has 29 bodies buried about three feet below where anybody who's in that house is standing. Remember, this guy was a social butterfly. Detective Albrecht told us all about the huge parties that he would throw with hundreds of people, a who's who of sorts, that were in and around his entire property. To that effect, we had posted a picture on DefenseDiaries.com that I took of a collage of photographs that Detective Hackmeister had in his possession. In this particular photograph, you'll see Pogo the Clown in the middle. And if you look above the picture of Gacy and his first wife in front of a slot machine, you'll see a picture of the creep in a chef's coat and hat, standing in front of his large brick grill, cooking for all the partygoers. All the while, buried underneath that brick grill is one of his victims, one of the unidentified victims, as a matter of fact. I want you to think about just how incredibly warped that is. Gacy standing there with a giant pot of some shit cooking, thinking to himself, yeah, enjoy this food that I'm cooking over the rotting corpse of one of my victims, you assholes. Yum. As grotesque as that is, imagine being one of the guests that attended one of those parties. After the nightmares unveiled and made public on the 10 o'clock news, and that they, in fact, were having an outrageously good time on top of a serial killer's graveyard. I mean, it is a story that they will tell for the rest of their lives, but man... That is fucked up. Just something to ponder. Back to business. So while the boys are mashing the buttons on their little football game in their heated death match, 
Gacy is receiving an urgent call. He comes storming out of the house, yells to the fellows, We're going to Resurrection Hospital! He jumps in his car and takes off. The roads that night are extremely icy, so Gacy's olds is sliding from side to side as he maniacally drives to the hospital. They make it there in one piece. Gacy gets out and he lumbers into the building and surfaces about a half an hour later and informs the guys that his lawyer, Sam Amaranti's little boy, had a medical emergency. And Gacy was very concerned about his health. Let me tell you something, in 20 years of practice, I've never had a client show up for a family emergency. Shit, come to think of it, I've never called a client of mine at midnight in order to inform them of a family emergency. I find this hour of time in Gacy and Sam's life to be very puzzling. I can't put my finger on why exactly, I just do. Gacy, at this point, is famished from all of that caring. So they hit a late night spot called Mr. K's for an egg sandwich. Let's see what the men in the field get done on the 18th. Detective Kautz has been tasked with trying to locate Rob Peast, or the more likely scenario, his remains. Remember back when the creep came into the station at three in the morning on the 13th and the cop on the desk noticed that he was covered in mud? While on the search on the 13th, the cops had taken all of Gacy's vehicles into evidence, which means that they had removed the Chevy Scottsdale, the olds which Gacy had driven to the station where he was located during that search and the work van from Gacy's home. All of the vehicles were then transported to the secured garage at the police station. Upon a cursory examination of the exterior of the olds, Kautz notices that, much like Gacy earlier in the morning, the rear portion of the car was covered in mud as well. As law enforcement had reached the conclusion that Gacy had more likely than not disposed of Robbie's lifeless body and that it had probably happened very recently, Kautz takes it upon himself to call the agricultural school at the University of Illinois, Champaign. He gets an advisor named Wally Schmidt on the phone and explains that he is hoping that he can provide them with a dirt sample taken from a vehicle involved in a major criminal investigation, and is hoping that they might be able to determine the general location from where the dirt came. Schmidt advises Kautz that the only test that they could do would be on the potash or the phosphate pH content, and that that wouldn't be very helpful to the cause. He then tells Kautz that he should try calling Dr. Ted Peck, who is the head of the soil chemistry testing lab, the man knows dirt. Kautz takes the number and calls Dr. Peck. Peck answers and Kautz explains the purpose of the call. Peck says, yes, we can perform tests, but we need to know the area where the dirt possibly originated. Kautz must have been thinking, well, if I fucking knew that, I wouldn't be calling you, dirt man. Peck continues on, explaining that they would run tests on the organic matter, pH, acidity, and phosphate but they could not definitively pin down an area without a comparison sample from the same location. He ended his dissertation by telling Kautz that even if they had a sample from the suspect site, they still could not definitively tell whether the sample from Gacy's car came from the suspect site. The hell? Next time, just tell me, no, you can't match the dirt samples. Great idea, shit results. The search for Rob Peast continues. On to December 19th, it's crunch time as the holiday season is fast approaching, which for the Desplaines police means that their investigation would come to a screeching halt as businesses will close down and people will be doing what people do on the holidays, which typically doesn't include talking to the cops about a missing kid or a seemingly benign local businessman. The 19th, my friends, 
turns out to be a very big day for the investigation into John Wayne Gacy. Did you ever try to figure out in your own mind what was happening to you? Because, you know, like my own in my own neighborhood, or even along the streets, or uh, like Montrose or, or Lawrence or anything, or even anywhere in Norwich, if I seen hitchhikers or that, I would not pick up nobody around my house. I would not pick up nobody in my own neighborhood. Did you ever, during the course of your days, did you think about this? Did you think about the bodies under your house? Did you think about what you probably had done, even though you didn't remember it specifically? Was it on your mind a lot during the day? None of it was. When you, when you, you know, the only... <clears throat> all right. Once, once the burial was done, so there was no number count. There was no nothing in my mind. Did you ever reflect back? No. When you were going to go even, out and you think, well, maybe this is going to happen again. No, never thought about it. You know, you, you know, see, like what you're saying, how, how can you think about something that you don't even know that you did? But you knew a body. You knew the body. Yeah, well, all I, all I was doing is concealing bodies, but I, I don't I don't know anything about killing. But do you, what was your thought? Did you think of, from day to day about these bodies under your house? Did you think, uh, want to stop yourself somewhere? I mean, the probability that you killed them was there. Yeah. And yet, you'd go out again. You wouldn't think about it during the day. You'd go out, didn't it cross your mind that it was going to happen again? No. These trenches. After, after, after a burial, I, I would think about, oh, this, you know, this shit is happening again. But when you were going out, I got to stop it. You know, but, but not when I was going out. No, because I didn't think about it. Because look how many times I went out and I picked up people and went sometimes to their homes uh, or to their apartments or something like that and I had sex with them there. Sometimes at my place. You know, here again, like that, that, that three to five hundred in the last so many years, or even a, even as many as a thousand in the last few years. But the thing of it is, is that all of them weren't brought back to my house. Some of them were brought, too. Is it conceivable that some of the bodies under the house are women? It's possible, but I don't know. I mean, when all this was going on, what, how did you feel when you knew there were bodies in there? I'm trying to figure how out. How the hell can you feel about something that you don't do? How can I have any feelings about it? Once they were in the ground, they weren't my problem. They weren't, you know, you don't understand. But you didn't worry about it. How can you worry about something that you don't, you, you're completely blanked out of your did head? Did you ever want to talk about, you know, these bodies under the house with anybody? Even though you didn't. No. What about the trenches? You knew why the trenches were down there, didn't you? I mean, you knew that bodies were going to be put in those trenches, didn't you, John? No. What did you think those trenches were there for? We had dug them for, for drainage time. I was going to work on a basement because, like I told you, you know, you know, here, here in January here, when when the, the snow season slowed down. I was going to have the whole basement completely cemented under with 27 yards of concrete, 28 yards. 
more truckloads of concrete. So there was these miners with their, their blower and blow the concrete under there. They just put a bit of concrete under the whole goddamn basin. A foot thick. Was that going to be to conceal what was down there? No, because I was getting ready to build a second floor on a house, and I didn't want that odor in the house somewhere. Why would, would I spend money to, to redo the house and fix up the house? I had mixed emotions. I, I had two things in mind. One, I, if I sold the house, I wanted that whole goddamn basin solid concrete under there. Because there would be no order in the house, and the house would be easier to sell. Secondly, if I was building up higher in the house, and, and the, the old ductwork system and everything was going to be torn out, there was no reason to have a crawl space under the house. I had thought that if, if I tired along the walls and, and filled it up with concrete, that the natural spring or whatever is underneath that house, that the fucking stuff would have to go under other houses or, or the secrets would have to stay on the outside of my foundation and not underneath my house. That was the prima face reason. It was I wasn't filling, I wasn't going to concrete the basement to, to hide the bodies or anything like that because it didn't enter my mind that those holes had been dug and that those those burials were there. It did not it did not enter my mind that I was concealing anything. I was I was cementing it for a reason of odor, plus the fact that I was going up with the house higher. It's odor. The odor was from the clay or was it from the clay? No, no. How the hell could the odor be in the house? Hell, you'd have to ask my mother. When we first moved in there, there was an odor in the house. And that was back in 70, 71. And there was many discussions with Ed Drexel next door, and he had a pump under his house. The guy across the street when Sokolowski lived over there, he had a he had a pump under his house. Did you ever want to tell anybody about these bodies under the house? You no. You want to talk to your mother, sister, no. priest, anybody. I told you that I had... Are you a religious person? I mean, were you, uh... Do I believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Were you when I was younger, participating? yes. No, within the last few years. No. Not active in religion at all. Never. I believed in God. I would consider myself an emotional type person, religious-wise. You know, it's a moving thing. You I were, felt that I was doing my own thing with mankind by helping others. By doing a lot of civic-type work and, and working with other people. I, I don't know. Basically, I, I felt sorry for people. I was an easygoing person. Anybody, you know, after you were around me for a while, you'd know I was noble enough to get around. I'm easy to get around. You know, because you never, I, can, I can get mad by, at uh, I can get my calling. Yeah, I'm Catholic. You never went to confession or anything like that during the past few years, have you? Mm, no, not, not confession. No, nor communion. You have, did you ever feel any yeah, moral moral repercussions as a result of having these bodies in your house? Any, Why would I? The, the yeah. people that were killed were, were homosexual. They, they were, hated homosexuals. They were bad people to begin they with. They hated them. I don't hate nobody. I dislike them. No, I don't hate anybody. I dislike them. Yes. Uh, I don't. I don't care if anybody engages. I'm a liberal thinker. I don't care what anybody engages in, and, and I don't sit in judgment on anybody. Okay? If anybody does anything under a consenting view, I, I see nothing wrong with it. Rossi, who had lawyered up after his last date with the Displains police, has agreed to take a polygraph test or a lie detector test with his attorney at Hanrahan present. Hanrahan is a high-powered, high-priced former state's attorney. And I'm talking about the state's attorney. 
So how in the hell does Rossi, who's making five bucks an hour and whose parents aren't loaded, secure this guy's services? The Rossi mystery continues to grow. So the test was going to be administered by Lieutenant Kozenzak, who had prepared the questions that Rossi was to be asked. Now, polygraph tests are not admissible in Illinois as evidence in criminal cases, as they are not considered to be a scientifically reliable form of evidence. The use of polygraphs in cases was originally struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Fry v. U.S. all the way back in 1923. That case remained the seminal case on the subject until 1993, when the Supreme Court changed the rule with regard to admissibility of scientific evidence in the case Daubert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, where the court held that certain evidence could be admissible if it satisfied the five factors of the Daubert standard. It's basically a battle of experts where the court attempts to verify through testimony of those experts whether or not the evidence sought to be admitted is junk science or if it's legit. For example, the admissibility of DNA evidence was run through the Daubert test ringer before it was allowed to be introduced into evidence. And we all know what impact DNA had on the criminal justice system in this country. It has helped convict and helped exonerate. The Daubert test remains the legal standard to this day, and we will get into that in much greater detail in later seasons of Defense Diaries, because in 1978, it didn't exist. So why fuck with it now? Back to Kozenzak and Rossi. Now, I have mentioned previously that my sources in terms of research were to be limited to court documents, transcripts, and police reports. However, for this particular part of the tale, I have to use Kozenzak's own book, entitled The Chicago Killer, The Hunt for Serial Killer John Wayne Gacy, which he wrote with his wife Karen in 2003, which was published by Ex Libris. Now, you might be saying to yourself, but Bob, you promised. You said you were going to only use direct source material, and you're not wrong. But the particular police report regarding Rossi's polygraph test has apparently vanished off the face of the earth. And trust me when I tell you, I have searched for it hard. So we are going to use Kozenzak's book, and we will give it the appropriate weight it deserves, because I have no idea if he took creative liberties when he wrote this book or not. There is information that we possess that you will learn about in short order, which makes me believe that he did. So I'll let you judge for yourself once you've been provided with all the information that I possess. And we will be referring to this book again in the very near future to try and help us understand certain questions that will arise. Because Kozenzak is no longer with us for me to ask him the questions directly. So let's check out the polygraph test. Here's what Kozenzak claims are the questions that he asks Rossi after he gets him hooked up to the machine. Question one, do they call you Michael? This is to set a baseline because they know that he will answer this truthfully. Question two, are you over 17? Another baseline. Question three, last week, did you take any part in the disappearance of Rob Peast? Meat of the matter. Question four, are you in displays right now? baseline. Question five, do you know where Robert Peast is now? Meat of the matter. Question six, did you take part in an unnatural sex act more than two times? Yeah, I know. Uh, it was 1978. Might as well have been the Stone Ages. Number seven, did you ever go to school? Baseline. Number eight, did you help remove the body of Robert Peast 
from any vehicle. Meat of the matter. Number nine, did you help hide Rob Peace's body? Meat of the matter. Number 10, do you know who caused the disappearance of Rob Peace? Meat. And finally, number 11, have you ever tried to have sex with another man? Objection, relevance, oh, sorry, force of habit, but what the fuck? And that's it for that portion. Kozenzak states that Rossi claimed innocence or ignorance of all the pieced questions and that the results were inconclusive. Yeah, I know, anticlimactic. I would like to have been able to strap Kozenzak in and ask him only one question. Do you think that Rossi was involved in some way with Peace's disappearance? I think that based on the questions he asked Rossi, that that pretty much would be a baseline question, with the answer being yes. Disappointed, Kozenzak decides to give Rossi an alternate test called the Peak of Tension Test. This test used a map of Cook County that Kozenzak had divided into 12 grids, with grid number four including unincorporated Norwood Park, where Gacy lived. He instructs Rossi to say no each time he pointed to a grid and asked, is the body of Robert Peast buried here? The indicator of deception of this test is an extreme response or a spike to a question asked that the answer was actually yes, as opposed to the required answer of no. So Kozenzak claims that when he points to grid four where Gacy's house was, that there was an extreme response in Rossi's blood pressure reading. But the test ends up being inconclusive because Rossi refused to continue. Kozenzak must have been thinking, son of a bitch. But here's where it gets weird. Kozenzak claims that he unhooks Rossi from the machine and asks him some post-test questions. Most of them about him digging trenches in Gacy's crawl space so that drainage tiles could be placed down there to help with the dampness, which was causing a persistent odor. Yeah, that's what was causing the persistent odor. Then he asks him one final question, quote, if you had to guess where the body of Rob Peast was right now, what would you say? End quote. Kozenzak in his book claims that Rossi replied, quote, he's buried under John's house, end quote. What? Wait a second. Let me grab the nine page police report that is supplied to both the prosecution and defense and discovery and which they rely on before, during, and after trial in order to compare and contrast. Yeah, nothing. Rossi didn't say that during his six-hour interview. Okay, hold on. I'll keep looking for Kozenzak's report that contains this earth-shattering information. Yeah, I'm not gonna do that. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. I have read these reports hundreds of times, and there is no such report. Yet somehow a trial? This little statement pokes its head out of its little hole like Puxatawney Phil on Groundhog's Day. Not only that, this alleged bombshell statement doesn't make its way into the complaint for search warrant of December 21st, which we will get into in the next episode. You know what I think? I don't think that Rossi said that, plain and simple. There is simply no viable explanation for a statement like that not to be contained somewhere, anywhere, if any of you out there has a theory, seriously, I want to hear it. Go to defensediaries.com and email us, or go to our Insider's Facebook page and post it. I'll be waiting, patiently, but I won't be holding my breath. While this craziness is going on in Kozenzak's homespun polygraph lab, 
a local businessman named John Lucas comes into the station to offer some information about Gacy. Detective Bikel takes the man's statement. Lucas explains that he owns the Shell gas station located at Higgins Road in Washington and Park Ridge, which is a very short distance from Gacy's home. He says that he's owned that station for the last 12 years and that he is presently doing business with Gacy and that during the past week, Gacy stopped by, which wasn't unusual because he was over there all the time. But on this particular occasion, Gacy informed him that he was suspected of murdering the missing kid from Des Plaines, Rob Peast. Piquel looks at him as if to say, go on. Lucas continues that Gacy insisted that he had nothing to do with it and that he could account for all but 20 minutes of his time on that date that Peace went missing. Tell me more, Piquel thinks to himself. Lucas further states that he started doing business with Gacy in April of 78. Piquel asks Lucas if he can recall the vehicles that Gacy used in the time that he has known him. Lucas states that he has a black four-door Olds so that's outfitted with the spotlight, and that he believed that he also owned three pickup trucks and a van with the letters PDM on it. Piquel asks if he's ever seen Gacy or his employees come in with a red or a white pickup truck, to which he replies in the negative. Lucas goes on to say that Gacy told him that he worked for the FBI back when First Lady Rosalind Carter came into town. Piquel raises his eyebrows. Hmm. Lucas continues. Yeah, Gacy appears to be a nervous and honorary person. It seems like he has a dual personality, and he feels like Gacy isn't the type of person to be messed with. Piquel asks Lucas for the names of his present employees, which he provides. He states that one of his employees, a Lance Jacobson, had told him a story about an employee of Gacy's who had quit working for him without giving notice, and that Gacy shortly thereafter invited the youth to go out drinking, and then he brought the intoxicated youth back to the house, specifically his garage, where Gacy proceeded to tie the youth up and beat the shit out of him. Lucas adds that this other employee, Harley, had told Lance the story, who then told Lucas, telephone game? He adds that Lance told him the story first, and then at some point, Harley told him the same story, and that the stories matched up. John Lucas ends the conversation stating that Gacy had told him that he had his own bodyguard, and he thinks that Gacy is a guy who likes to exaggerate and brag about things. And because of that, Lucas has no idea what's bullshit and what's not when it comes to what Gacy tells him. Piquel terminates the interview. Boy, it sure seems like Lucas was ahead of the learning curve when it came to the facade that was John Wayne Gacy. Piquel then interviews the very Lance Jacobson that Lucas had just discussed. Lucas had insisted that he come to the police station with him to tell the police what he knew about Gacy, because you never know what could be helpful to the police. Solid citizen this Lucas guy is. So what else goes down on the 19th? Oh yeah. Detective Ron Adams decides that he needs to interview Kim Byers for a third time. You remember her, Robbie's co-worker at the pharmacy, who gave a very detailed statement the day after Rob went missing, when her memory would have been at its freshest. So what could they possibly need to discuss with Kim Byers that they don't already know? Let's find out. At 6 p.m., Adams calls Byers' residence and speaks with Kim's mom who informs him that Kim is at a swim meet and won't be home till around 8 p.m. Now, according to Adams' typed report dated December 19th of 78, 
which in actuality wouldn't have been prepared until long after the 19th and would have been drafted like all police reports are explicitly for use by the prosecutor and the defense attorney in their respective investigations and then at trial. So needless to say that police reports are very carefully prepared and are then reviewed and signed off on by their supervisor, which in this case was Lieutenant Kozenzak. Remember, Detective Adams is deceased, which is why we are relying exclusively on his report. Anyway, according to his report, Adams writes that he then tells Mrs. Byers that he needs Kim to contact him to make a written statement regarding photo receipt number 36119. Wait, what's this now? The photo receipt that I've tantalized you with in previous episodes has finally decided to show up to the party? Where you been, little guy? I mean, I've gone through this investigation blow by blow with you. I've left no stone unturned. I've scoured and reported to you every detail from every police report, warrant, and property evidence inventory sheet leading up to the 19th of December, which, remember, are supposed to list every item found during searches and the investigation itself. Those little lists are critical because they alone create the chain of custody. Chain of custody? What's that, Bob? Oh, I'm glad you asked. It's your favorite time, and it's my favorite time. It's definition time. LegalDictionary.net defines chain of custody as the chronological process of maintaining and documenting the handling of evidence and involves keeping a detailed log, here a property evidence sheet, showing who collected, handled, transferred, or analyzed evidence during an investigation. Now I'm going to go into much greater detail about chain of evidence in the next episode. Why you ask? Well, because I really need each and every one of you to have a very firm understanding of chain of custody and why it matters. But for our purposes right now, the definition will suffice. So yeah, we haven't heard hide nor hair about this receipt prior to right now in Detective Adams' report of December 19th, which will be posted on defensediaries.com for your inspection. But who cares? Holy shit! The Displains police have apparently found the absolutely crucial link between Gacy and Peast. Rob allegedly had this receipt in his pocket, and somehow it ended up at Gacy's house. Since the police reports and the property evidence inventory sheets don't tell us, where this important piece of evidence was found, let's go back to Lieutenant Kozenzak's book, The Chicago Killer, The Hunt for Serial Killer John Wayne Gacy, to see what he says about where it was found. He writes in Chapter 4, A Shadow for Another Time, December 13th, 1978, Wednesday, quote, Once we had the search warrant, Terry Sullivan gave me a slight manpower reinforcement by assigning state's attorney investigator Greg Badeau to assist us with the case, end quote. He goes on, quote, I gathered together those who would be involved with searching the contractor's home. The group consisted of Pickell, Detective Adams, Detective Olson, Detectives Jim Kautz and Ralph Tovar, end quote. Okay, so we know who Kozenzak says was there to effectuate the warrant on the 13th. This is so exciting. Quote, we were looking for a missing person. If we didn't find him, 
we had to look for evidence indicating that he might have been there or that Mr. Gacy was involved with his disappearance. In order to keep an inventory of what we were taking, the investigators were instructed to run each item by me. End quote. Okay, Kozenzak's running a tight ship here. Quote, As I put the key in the door, I felt like I was stepping into the unknown. A chill ran through me, and I turned my head sideways to see if I could get a glimpse and feel the emotions of the men standing behind me. I wondered if they felt the same as I did about Rob. I believe they did. There was a silence among the apprehensive group. The image of that missing boy was in front of our eyes. End quote. Wow, the tension builds. Let's see what they find. Quote, the house had three bedrooms, one of which Gacy used as an office, a very large dining room, a combination family room slash living room, a kitchen, and a bathroom. The seven of us were all over that place, opening closets, pulling drawers, and photographing everything as we went along. One of the men also went to the garage, and another checked out the attic. While my role during that search was mainly that of supervisor, I did notice, as I walked through the kitchen, a red photo receipt lying in the bottom of the trash basket. Picking it up, I made out number 36119, Nissan Pharmacy, Inc., 1920 Tuohy Avenue, Desplaines, Illinois. It was the one item I personally recovered that night, which would prove invaluable to our investigation. End quote. Holy shit, y'all. Thank God that thing was sitting right at the bottom of the trash can in the kitchen. I mean, considering that Kozenzak had been in Gacy's house the night before on the 12th, grilling him about peace and telling him that he needed to come to the station to make a written statement, and that Gacy had worked feverishly to get rid of Peace's body in parts unknown. To have Gacy leave that little piece of paper sitting right there, pristine, for anyone who was looking for it? Well, that's just incredible good fortune. So now they have this little photo received from Nissan Pharmacy, the very place where Rob Peast was last seen, and where Gacy was known to have been on that night. I'm sure that the very next investigatory action was to drive right over to the pharmacy that night, or even the next day, to tell one of the Torf brothers to show them the corresponding envelope that the receipt had once been attached to, to see if Gacy had dropped off some film to be developed, which would suck. But if not him, then who? Maybe, just maybe it was Rob Peast himself. Whoever it was, they had some explaining to do. So in light of what we just read, I realized that I must have missed something specifically a report detailing the follow-up that would have naturally occurred after finding a piece of evidence of this magnitude, especially when what needed to be done next was so fucking obvious. So I dove back in, and you know what? I didn't miss it. There was no report drafted by anyone about the follow-up investigation regarding the photo receipt, because quite simply, it didn't happen. This fact alone is absolutely mind-boggling and to be honest raises a lot of very serious questions that need to be addressed 
Maybe Kim Byers can enlighten us about this mysterious photo receipt. I'm not exactly sure how at this juncture, Adams has reached the conclusion that Kim Byers has crucial information about this receipt, but he has. Let's see what Kim has to say. At 8.23 on December 19th, Kim Byers shows up at the Displains Police Department and writes the following statement, which I have to read to you because Kim Byers won't agree to be interviewed. You'll hear that on the next episode of Defense Diaries. For you true crime buffs that need some comic relief mixed in with your murder, my awesome friends at Unethical Podcast invited me as a guest on their final episode of their first season, which was a super shallow dive into the Salem Witch Trials. They are hilarious and smart, which is a very dangerous combo. So check them out and download that on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, thanks to you, the listeners, who make our days a little brighter when we see that we aren't just talking to no one out there when we're doing this show. But please, subscribe, share, follow, rate, and review. I know I say it every week, but that's because it matters. Talk to you next week. It's going to be a good one.